So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what's coming up today. 99.9% of the times when I ask the people that call me, did you go to the police? They say, yeah. And I say, what happened? They laughed at me. They turned their backs on me. They told me it was a civil matter. When mumbo-jumbo leads to extortion. Meet the man who brings fraudulent psychics to justice. Plus... The husband would say things like, Oh, I'm going to put a baby inside you, or these tits are so ready. Alex Fox keeps the romance alive whilst you're trying to conceive. And Ollie Peart gets magical with some hankies and a tube. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And hello to Nikki in New Zealand, who says, Hi Ollie, my partner, a wonderful Londoner, introduced me to your podcast about a year ago, and I am now a hardcore man fan. I'm originally from Budapest, but I'm currently studying at the University of Auckland, where I'm very passionate about data analytics and visualisation. You may be wondering why this email has suddenly segued into the language of a job application. And that is because, you might recall, I said in passing a couple of episodes ago, It would be nice, if possible, someone somewhere, if they can be bothered, were to make us an interactive map of our global fandom, the Manbassadors. You know, I said it would be nice to have an interactive spinny globe online, and Nikki was getting in touch to offer to make that. But not just Nikki. Jason in Brooklyn then also got in touch. He's a software engineer. Then... Jeff in Hilton, New York, also wrote to us offering to do a map, and he is a professional map maker. Uh, sadly, he didn't elaborate on what that means. I don't know if he works for Google or if he's an oldie worldy cartographer. I would be fascinated to learn. Uh, and then Lauren, our ambassador for Chicago, got in touch. She is a data scientist. They were all offering to make maps. So we had four offers on the table, which is insane when you consider that there was uh, no money in return for this and it was going to take quite a lot of time never ceases to amaze me how podcast listeners will rise to any challenge, no matter how ridiculous, with considerable skills. Um, Nikki took the time and effort to make her map, and it was good. But then, awkwardly, manfan Ben in Osaka got in touch with a better one. Uh, he said, Ollie, I love your podcast, and over the past couple of months I've been working on making an interactive map of all your ambassadors anyway. What a hobby. Imagine my shock when you said on air that you wanted one. I've been working on it casually for a while, but now I know the race is on, I'll get it to you ASAP. Uh, And he did. And it's amazing. It's just what I wanted. It's a spinny globe you can play with, and you can see all the dots all over the world. And he made it so that we can embed it on our blog. And he's created a GitHub form so I can update it. I don't know what that means. But anyway, uh, take a look now at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash manbassadors. I must say, in fairness, 
that the one that Jason, the software engineer, did is probably prettier and more sophisticated than either Nicky or Ben's. But Jason, I'm sorry, the fact that Ben had been working on his for months anyway was the deal breaker for me. I felt with that level of dedication, he deserved to become the official map ambassador. But to give everyone their time in the sun, I will link to all three maps in the blog post for this episode for posterity. Uh, so thank you everybody for that essentially pointless exercise which uh, has reaffirmed my faith in human nature. Uh, Before we get going with this month's show, may I ever so briefly just remind you that whilst we are free to download, this podcast is not free to produce. You will hear that money in your ears in this episode. We have travelled all over the place for this. We've licensed music, we've used producer Matt's exciting new radio mics. Uh, So if you can afford to, please sign up to support this independent venture of ours with a monthly donation. Uh, We call it beer money because we ask for $5 a month and the average pint of beer in Britain is now £3.60, which is about $5. US But you can choose to give us any amount that you want, as little or as often as you want. You can set it up as an annual donation if you like or just a one-off payment. We have a completely customizable, secure web form and a PayPal account as well if you prefer to use that. It is all very welcome every penny goes back into supporting the modern man so if you enjoy our podcast you appreciate what we do please do support us financially now visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money thank you Uh, right in this episode you will learn which demographic is most targeted by fortune tellers you'll learn how an egg and some cayenne pepper can make you half a million dollars and you'll learn what pismus is Let's go. Right, time for the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with the unthinking man's magician, Ollie Pierce. Hello. Hi. We are backstage at the Underbelly on London's glittering South Bank. Yeah. In the beer garden, having a well-deserved beer. I'm not. I'm having an American soft drink. You've got to drink. It's fine. You can say Coke. Can I? Yeah. We're not being sponsored by Pepsi. Oh, I'm having a Coke. (laughs) How did it feel to be performing at this venue, Ollie Pier, earlier this evening? This this, uh, famous venue? I mean, I've seen Joan Rivers perform here before. It was really nerve-wracking. Like, really nerve-wracking. And also, you've had a month to learn this trick, but really... Uh, David from East Anglia himself has been teaching you the trick you performed tonight, today. Yes, I, I only had a few hours. So it, it hasn't been a month. It's been a few hours. I spent this afternoon learning the trick, perfecting it, and he's been teaching me all the little intricacies of it. Well, you say perfect. I mean, we'll talk about how the trick went in just a moment. But first, what did you learn about magic, about this sort of social media and Netflix age of magic and why magic is a trend now? Well... Magicians, new magicians, young magicians, if you like, right, are instead of wanting to get into live acts, those massive prop-led tricks. Remember, like David Copperfield walking through the Great Wall of China, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, when I think magician, I think more guy in a sparkly suit with buttons. But yeah, yeah. Instead of that, what they're doing is they're turning to social media, they're going out. It's like street magic or, or whatever in, in, in front of people, filming it, short videos, posting it on Instagram, hashtag magic, hashtag card trick. And they're getting millions and millions of followers. Are they? Well, yeah. There's one guy in particular, this guy called Julius Dien. And he's a British guy. And a couple of years ago, he had no followers at all. Like, no, just none, anywhere. And he used to just work at weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever, uh, doing magic. And then he perfected his videos, and he now has over 20 million followers on all of his platforms together. For magic tricks? For magic tricks. What kind of things does he do? So he does 
a lot of card tricks, a lot of tricks with coins. But the thing that he's done is he's combined that with his love of SEO, right? So he's worked out that a video of his with the thumbnail of um, him screaming gets four times as many views as a thumbnail of him running. And he's managed to perfect all of these little intricacies in the way that he posts his videos for them to get more engagement and more followers. And and they're in, like instant. What he does, he starts them with the reaction. So you see the reaction, you're like, ooh, what's he what's done he to get done? that? Yeah. yeah, they're very shouty. Okay, so did you try your hand at doing some social media magic before your big live gig? I did. I went out onto the mean streets of Weymouth to perform some card tricks to some old people. And how do... <laughs> it sounds like it's getting millions of views already. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't click on that? How did Old people <laughs> stunned by card trick mastermind. How did you research the trick to do? Because so, I suppose this is another internet thing, isn't it? Like, mm. what in the old days, you'd have had to have joined the magic circle. Yeah. But now, presumably, you can just, like, on YouTube, say how to do a card trick. Yeah, exactly. And the magic circle are really annoyed about this. Yeah. They're like, this is going to ruin the art of magic. Because what, what, what you can do now, like you said, you can just Google it, find a magic trick, learn it, and then film yourself doing it. And then just wait until you get it right. <laughs> is that what you did? And then and then post it. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. I'm not a magician. I can't go and learn ten years worth of card, like you know, uh, sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff. I just I literally went out onto the streets. Yeah. And the trick I did was really simple. It was pick a card, any card. Yes. Don't look at it. Yeah. I say think of a card, and then they think of a card. Why they, don't they just look at the one they're holding? No, no, can't look at the one they're holding. Okay. And then they say the card, so they'll go four of clubs, and I go. Turn your card over. Yeah. And they turn it over. Now imagine if yeah. that was the Four of Clubs. Yeah, you'd be impressed. Impressed. Did yeah. You have to wait one in 52 times for it to be the Four of Clubs. Not quite. So, what I did is I had another deck of cards, which were all the Jack of Diamonds. Okay. And I. So, just... did you say, think of the Jack of Diamonds? No. <laughs> <laughs> How did you make them think of that? Well, no. I basically just waited until somebody said the Jack of Diamonds. So, it just. It, it, <laughs> It just it lowered the odds okay. of, of meaning to wait. I, I was still out there for an hour. How many people did you speak to before someone oh. said the Jack of Diamonds? 15, 20. Okay. So you had 15 videos, basically, of people being unimpressed because yes. they said the Three of Clubs. Mm-hmm. What did you do? Did you just run away at that point? Or did you go no, through No, just look disappointed. And, and then they were like, oh, it looks like you need more practice and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they were See, all old, so they were really nice. In a strange way, actually, going to Weymouth rather than Shoreditch was probably a smart move. Yeah. Because their expectations well, are low and they're going to be supportive. You know, like edgy magicians, like, I, I say edgy, but like Dynamo and Hidgo yeah, yeah. to like, like some street kids to like, sort of, I'm going to do some magic and it'll, yeah, yeah. I'll connect with them well, because of the reaction, like yeah. if you get like really excited people yeah. standing in a hip area of town, they'll be like, "Ah, look at this guy!" Exactly. That but if I, if, if I did it? that and fucked it up, I'd yeah. probably get beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you actually managed to produce a video of you successfully astonishing somebody. I did, and I've uploaded it on Twitter. You can go to my Twitter at Ollie EP. That's O W L I E. EP and I've uploaded it up there I've uploaded it on YouTube and I've uploaded it on Instagram has anyone commented saying wow you the magic king I've had you the uh, boss no what's that what's that emoji where it's like uh, just looking up <laughs> I've had that one what's that what is that like an eye roll yeah eye roll yeah, yeah. but then I, I spoke to David he, he was here today who wrote in and yeah. he was saying to me that the problem with this and being able to Google magic tricks and look at them on YouTube because like, he's a uh, professional magician yeah after you've seen them is you you find out how it's done and you lose a lot of the magic there and also as a magician you're you're sort of setting yourself up to only be able to perform in front of the camera and then when you want to perform live on the stage if you're only able to get the trick right one in three times then you stand no chance in front of a live audience 
I'm not surprised that David, as a professional magician, is someone who does not like people knowing easily how to do magic tricks. But I suppose for the magicians that are prepared to talk about how they do their tricks, it gives them an extra revenue stream, doesn't it, they never had before? Yeah, exactly. So that guy I was talking about before, Julius Dien, he has two Instagram accounts. Yeah. Uh, the second one's called Julius Dien2. And it's a private account, so you have to request to follow it. And it's, it shows you how to do all of the tricks. So when he's a normal Instagram account, he'll go, go to Julius DN2 and I'll show you how to do this trick that I've just shown you. And then you go there and he'll literally talk you through it step by step. And it has about 400,000 followers compared to his 6.1 million on his Instagram. But, it, but it's there. And that's what they do. They get a lot of views through people wanting to learn how to do the trick or know how the trick's done. Do you think it does ruin magic tricks to know how they're done? Because actually I don't. Like, because I don't really believe people are magic. So it's fine. Like I, I, that's kind of why I'm a bit. I sigh inwardly slightly when I'm at a wedding and a magician comes up to me and starts doing a card trick because I'm like, I know how the next five minutes is going to go. Like for a start, when he says think of a card, I can't think of a card because I'm not that familiar with cards. I never play cards. I don't like jack of clubs, whatever. I don't know what does that even look like? Clubs and spades, they look the same. And then you know he does the bit of patter, and hey presto, he produces the card I was thinking on. I'm like, yeah, okay, that. That is impressive, but I knew you were going to do that. Yeah. So actually, the thing that would be more impressive is you'd tell me how you did it. Well, <laughs> from what from what I've done over the last few weeks, it depends on the trick. So there was this one card trick that I saw on YouTube that this guy talked through, and uh, and he, you know he broke down the individual parts. And it was it was about like transporting one card from one hand to the other. Yeah. And he broke down how he did the trick. Now the hand movements and the intricacies of the, what he's doing with his fingers yes. is incredible. Exactly. Like, it, yeah, it's amazing. But you don't see that because he's so good at it. You don't see it. But if I told you how I did the trick today, yeah. you'd be like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> you kidding? You'd be like, what? Nah. So are you not going to tell me how you did it? No, I'm not going to tell you how, you how I did it. Because, did you know, did I David said, tell you not to tell yeah, me? Did he? Yeah. That trick, the trick that I did was 100 years old. Oh, and, and, and brilliant. Kids all over Glad the world. Glad you explored the cutting-edge trend of magic then. That is a newish trick. There's, like, there's hardly any tricks that are newer than 200 years old. The trick you did today in front of a paying audience of podcast mm-hmm. fans yep. involved producing some scarves from a tube. Silk hankies. Sure. Da- David gave me three options for tricks. He gave me... Uh, so things you could learn in a day. Yeah. One of them was pouring water into a newspaper, turning it upside down, yeah. and, then pour- and then turning it into wine, and then pouring it into a wine glass. Oh, well, that's quite good. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's a bit Paul Daniels' 80s magic show, though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also, the newspaper was from 2014, so everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the other one was... Um, it was basically a banana in a bandana, and it was a, a, com- a comedic act because you had to listen to an audio track, and the audio track was talking about a bandana, and then you had a banana instead of a bandana, and then you made the banana disappear. I- I'm trying to focus on what you're saying, but I'm just loving the fact that this busker behind us is playing Hotel California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> soundtracking this story of a banana and a bandana in the most beautiful way. It would have gone brilliantly. With it. it would have been great with the trick, yeah. Just me doing this with a top hat on. Okay, and then so what was the trick that you did do? So the trick that I did is called the crystal tube, yeah. right? And you literally, these silk hankies, the idea is you put, they're all, they're not attached, they're not tied to each other. You stick them in the tube, you blow them out, and they are all tied together. Yeah, yeah. and it was good. So I'm, I'm going to tell the audience now how it went. Go on then. You aced it. You did a magic... I mean, when I say aced it, your your patter could do with some work. It's that's so hard. When he was focusing on putting the the scarves into the tube, Mm. I mean, not a sentence uttered his lips. (laughs) (laughs) Not a distracted eye movement. He was playing milkshake by (laughs) Khalees at just standing there like he was waiting for a bus. (laughs) But the scarves went in. Yeah. 
And they came out all tied together, yeah. and it was really good. I did so hard. You trying to do any kind of patter with a magic trick is unbelievably difficult. It was it, also I didn't have a microphone in my hand because I was trying to do That's this true. trick. Yeah, it's a bit unfair, but yeah, I like I looked. You com- could have smiled. I, I mean, you were like the bassist at the back of a band, just like know- looking at his feet. Right. There's a bit in the trick which you will remember where I put the green hanky into the tube, yeah. and then I, and then I had to blow it, and it comes out the other end, so that that both. Uh, Yes. Each end's hanging out the tube, right? And actually, you did, to be fair, you fished for some applause when you did the blowing. Do you know how long it took me to be able to do that? And David kept saying, why can't you do this? This is so easy. What was the thing you were struggling to do? Just, like, purse your lips and blow? I just don't just blow halfway through. Yeah. You get stuck halfway. He's like, well, that's never Does happened. Does it need a lot of force? No. Is that, no. No. He's like, I, I literally don't know what you're doing wrong because that's never happened to me. And when I was on the stage mm. doing the trick, and I asked you this afterwards, I said, did you, see, did you know how I did it? And you were like, yeah. no, absolutely no way. Yeah. When I was doing it, I actually fucked it up. Oh, there really? was one bit that I fucked up what? really quite badly. Yeah. I can't tell you what happened. And I was like, well, they've definitely seen how I've done this. They've all seen it. They've all yeah, seen no. how I've done it. And you're, you're so aware of what you're doing. Yeah, but it's a bit like what I was saying about, you know, when someone asks you what card you're thinking of and you're not really in that place mentally most of the time. I, I'm not in a world where I watch men blow hankies into tubes. <laughs> On a daily basis. So when you're saying you fucked it up, like, yeah. I mean, I've never seen someone do yeah, that before. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not thinking, well, he's not a good hanky blower. Do you know what I mean? What would be useful magic to you? Like, do you useful know what I mean? Magic. Yeah, but as in, because you don't want somebody to come up to you with props. Amalgamate you- all my bank accounts onto one handy app. <laughs> but that's it, actually, isn't it? I mean, I'm being facetious, but actually, mm. technology is magic now, isn't it? Well, it's Things happen with our voice and our thumbs that render 100-year-old tricks a bit mundane. Well, not necessarily. So, like, you know what I was saying before, like, the massive prop kind of tricks kind of falling out of favour. They're not they're not really a big thing now. But in, the guys that uh, build those and make those, instead, they're teaming up with people like Disney and Universal Studios, and they're incorporating those illusions within experiences. Yes. So you might not necessarily know that what you're watching is a magic trick, yes. but it is. So there's still space for that. Okay, and so now you have become a successful magician. I mean, you've performed on a London stage. Would you ever return to performing magic professionally again? Uh, no. No. Well, speaking of magic, uh, we're going to do a magic trick of our own now. I asked you to bring something with you. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it's my iPhone. That's right. It is your Apple iPhone, yep. uh, which yeah, you no longer use as your main mobile phone. That's right, isn't it? Because you now use uh, Google Pixel, right? Yeah, Google all the way. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to put that down on the table here. Yeah. And in this hand, what would you describe this as, Ollie? That's a hammer, That's Ollie. right. Here what goes. Do you, no, no, what do you... <laughs> What are you doing? Okay, so I could how, say, I would, describe what is in front of you now. A, a mangled phone that you've just hit it's with a hammer. It's not mangled. It's it, got a crack down the screen. No, but it's it obviously damaged and it's dented. It will all make sense as we reveal your challenge for the next episode. Yeah. It comes from <laughs> Hannah in Swansea. They're worth like, says, they're worth like 40 worth quid. This is 50 no, at best. Oh, so you've just smashed that. That's like burning 50 quid. The challenge is from man fan Hannah in Swansea who says... I spend too much time in DIY fix-it forums, watching videos of things I don't even own. I would like Ollie to investigate the online repair community and find out how to dismantle and reassemble a device. What? So So I've got to take it apart and put it... You've smashed it. No, but the whole point is... Okay, at this point, you've got a broken iPhone. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What do you do with it? 
What do you do with it now? I'd take it to a shop and fix right, it. Right, yeah, specifically or, which or, shop? Or, or recycle it. What shop would you take it to? The Apple Store. Right. There's a, there's a place near me called Fix It. Right. Yeah, I'll go there. No need, Ollie Pitt. Thanks to the very same powerful cyberspace communities that powered your descent into magic, mm. you can learn how to repair a phone from scratch yourself. Wouldn't that be empowering? <laughs> Possibly, if people like <laughs> regularly went around with hammers smashing people's phones up. <laughs> The hammer was produced from outside here. I thought it was a bit vivid, I'll be honest. But it I've done it now. It looks really sinister here. You just sitting there with a hammer waiting for people to walk past. Jeez. Only the microphones makes this okay. Yeah. Um, so. Man with hammer on South Bank walking about. It does look really dark. So your challenge is, can you take this phone, this iPhone, your old iPhone, and by next episode, bring it back repaired by your own fair hands? Well, I don't know. I will try. We don't know either, Ollie, and that is the investigative journalism under which this feature thrives. Great. Right. In a moment, you will meet Bob, the psychic fraud investigator. Please stick around. It's amazing. Uh, But first, time for our record of the month. This is by Atmospheric Alt-Rockers Palace. They've got a new album out on July the 12th, and this single is called Running Wild, and it's out now. You may recall last episode, I was sent a fingerprint blood test in the post by our sponsors, Thriver. They sent me three lancets, which is a posh word for needles, um, and also a test tube to send in my blood sample. I've now done it. It did take a bit longer than the five minutes they suggest, to be fair, because you do have to fiddle about reading the instructions and you have to get your hand wet and then you have to dry it off and then you have to prick your finger and and my blood seems to drip slowly. (laughs) But anyway, I did it. I posted it off and two days later, my Thriver dashboard went ping and presto, a freelance GP had examined my results. You get to see a photo of your doctor as well by the way. I googled mine. He is legit. He's written periodicals and he's been on Kilroy. Anyway, it turns out that my vitamins, liver function, ferritin are normal, so that's good, but I do have high LDL cholesterol, high non-HDL cholesterol. Don't worry, you get a little chart showing you what all this means and what you can do about it. And I have high total cholesterol, and obviously that's not good. Uh, Not worryingly so, but it does put me at increased risk of heart disease, so that gave me pause when I was um, forsaking an extra meatball last night. It's been a really interesting process, this. I wasn't sure, to be honest, what the appeal would be of doing this test more than once. But now I have done it once, I would be intrigued to see, I think, if I made changes in my diet and exercise... And let's be honest, that is a big if. But if I did, whether my test would return a different result in, say, six months' time. And the thing about Thriver is you get to specify how often you want to keep tracking your health. If this kind of thing intrigues you, if you'd like to try a home fingerprint blood test for yourself, we have a special deal just for man fans. You can get £25 off your first test at Thriver.co by using our code 
Man. And thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the show. Once again, for £25 off your first test, head to thriva.co and use our code M-A-N-N. Right. Also last episode, you'll recall Ollie and I flew to New York City. Uh, Some of you have rightly expressed concern at the carbon footprint we generated just to seemingly test an app and eat some ice cream. Well, you'll be pleased to know that in the 36 hours we were in New York City, I did also manage to squeeze in an interview. Here's what it sounds like when you hit the streets of Manhattan with private investigator Bob Nygaard. See where it says Irish pub and restaurant straight ahead yes. on the other side of the street. And then if you go down from where it says and, you'll see a thing that says psychic. Oh, yes. You can just see it now. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And uh, the place is under new management now. Yeah, so there's a sign uh, outside. It says psychic palm and tarot. Right. Walk-ins welcome, $10 special. Right. What's the $10 special? <laughs> I guess it's a one palm. They say for one palm, we'll read your one palm for $10. That's usually what it is. I had a woman call me one day, and she says, Bob, I gave $90,000 to a psychic. And she says, Bob, you know, my husband and I, we don't come from much, and it's money that we saved up our whole life to send our daughter to college. And she says, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, well, you know, let me see what I can do. I've been very successful. Let me try to build a case for you. She says, Bob, no, you don't understand. You really don't understand. And I said, what? You know, what am I not understanding? She says, Bob, I'm on my lunch break right now. She says, I'm on the eighth floor, and I'm standing on the ledge. She says, and I think it would be easier to just take that one step and end it all than um, go home and face them and tell them that I gave all my money away to a psychic. And, you know, that was very emotional. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm listening on the phone to this woman who's, you know, ready to kill herself because of the embarrassment and the shame she felt and because she had given away all this money that her and her husband had saved up for their daughter. Before he was a PI, Bob was an officer in the NYPD. He worked on robberies, assaults, and all the things you'd expect a New York cop to do. But he specialised in tracking down travelling con artists. So you have sweetheart swindles, you have home improvement scams, you have fortune-telling fraud, you have shoplifting, you have um, life insurance fraud, auto repair scams. Bob was recruited to the National Association of Bunko Investigators, an information exchange for law enforcement named after a dice game from the Prohibition era. After 21 years in the NYPD, Bob retired in 2008. I was 44 years old. I retired and I thought, you know something? I'm just going to forget about police work. I'm never going to think about that again. I loved, you know, what I did. I, you know, made a lot of great arrests and, and uh, I, I helped a lot of people. But it was like, OK, now it's my time to go lay on the beach, go out to tiki bars at night, have a few drinks and sit back and, and enjoy life. I had the excitement of being a cop, especially in New York. And then all of a sudden, now I'm laying on a beach. It was a rude awakening because I was always a go-getter. I was always a guy that liked to make a lot of arrests. I was very active. So, um, you know, I'm laying on the beach and I'm like, I have to do something. So I went and I got a private investigator license just to have something to do. What kind of thing did you think you'd be doing? 
I started off finding unclaimed money for people. I just, you know, I knew that the state and the federal government had billions of dollars that they didn't, that people like had checks that they didn't know where they were, like CDs that in the bank that they forgot about, uh, refunds from uh, like the electric company. But that was boring too. (laughs) So, So next thing you know, I went to a happy hour at a bar. And I was, uh, it was a Wednesday night. I was at the neighborhood bar and grill in Boca Raton. And I was looking to hook up, you know. And I go there and I meet a doctor and a nurse, two attractive women. And uh, the bartender actually was friends. She was friends with me. And she said, hey, Bob, I want to introduce you to these two women. So I go to dinner with them. We come back. We have a few more drinks. I'm telling war stories. They were into the whole police thing. Mm -hmm. So I was telling, uh, you know, regaling them with stories from when I was a cop. And they were, you know, asking me all kinds of questions. And, And so when I left, I gave them both my card and said, here's my number. Here's my card. And. About 10 minutes after I left, I get a call, and it's the doctor. And she says, hey, Bob, can I meet you down at the gas station on the corner of Federal Highway and Spanish River Boulevard? I thought she wanted to hook up, be honest with you. So I go down there. I'm all happy. You know, I think, okay, you know. (laughs) I go down to the corner. She pulls up, and she looks real serious. And I was like, well, this doesn't look like, you know, this is going anywhere. I wonder what this is about, you know. She pulls up and she says, Bob, I wanted to tell you something that uh, I couldn't say in front of my coworker. And it's something that's been heavy on my mind and I haven't been able to tell anybody. But in listening to you tell your stories, you were so passionate about your work and the things you've done that I feel that you're somebody, you're the person that I was destined to tell this to. She says, and I said, well, what is it? And she says, I was ripped off by a psychic. I told her, you know what, I'll take the case. So I take the case. I said, well, how did you first learn about the psychic? She says, through my maid. So I go back to her house. I meet the maid. Uh, she only spoke Spanish, so I, she did some interpreting for me. Uh, the victim did some interpreting for me and found out that there were a couple other women who had also seen this Gina Marks, and they were all going to the same nail salon, beauty place. It was a place where a woman was running it out of her home and was helping women with nails and, and, and facials and stuff like that. So there was a group of women, and there was one Peruvian woman was, was the doctor and uh, four Colombian women. So there was five women in total that were ripped off in the South Florida area, uh, Miami-Dade and Broward County. So I built a case. How do you build a case? You start with the first interaction that these people had, and you do a very detailed interview of each victim, and you ask them what was going on in your life before you even met the psychic. And then you say, and then how did you meet the psychic? And then you say, okay, and now that you met the psychic, when did you give money? On what dates? And then you have, like any financial investigation, you go through all the financials and you figure out what was given, when it was given, how much it was given, where did it come from? You know, so what was the typical pattern for Gina Marks? The typical pattern was she would take money from people, do a cold reading. And a cold reading is where someone comes in cold to them and they start to ask questions and they listen to their responses and they get verbal and nonverbal clues from the person and they decide what is it. Is it a relationship issue that's going on? Is it a health issue that's going on? And then what they do is they say, oh, you know what? 
Uh, this first reading was only $50, but I need to do deeper research mm -hmm. to get to the root cause of this problem of why your husband and you are having problems. Why is it that, you know, your husband left you or you're cheating on you? Why do you have these stomach pains? Why do you have cancer? You know, and psychic would then say in these type of situations, I have to do deeper research to find out what the root cause of this problem is. But that's going to cost you something a couple hundred more, something probably under a thousand dollars. I need seven hundred dollars to buy crystals and candles in order to find out what the root cause of the problem. I mean, is. at that point, alarm bells start ringing, don't they? For most people, we all know that a candle costs twenty dollars. So why are you giving right. them seven hundred? Because you're looking at it from your standpoint where you are in your life right now, mm. and you're not looking at it from being the person that just walked out of the doctor's office last week and was told that they have terminal cancer. You know, you looked in your wife's phone and found out that she's got pictures from her with another guy. These are the things that happen in people's lives that cause them to be vulnerable, and then they suspend their critical thinking. Uh, at a vulnerable moment in their life. And then they're reaching out for hope. And the doctor is not going to tell them, I can cure your terminal cancer. They're telling them the realistic aspect of what's going on. You know, this is what we need to do, and it doesn't look good. Or, you know, someone can't say, I can definitely bring your husband back to you, or I can definitely bring your wife back to you. But the psychic will look at this person dead in the eye and sell them false hope, mm. and they're very good at it. So you put the case together, and you brought it to the police. Right. And with this, the Economic Crimes Unit, the detective there, takes the case. He says, Bob, great job. You put a great case together. Let me see what I can do. Not long after that, he calls me back, and he says, hey, Bob, I got great news for you. I said, well, what's the news? He says, Bob, I got all the money back. He says, all you got to do is arrange for your people to come down and pick up the money, and we're good to go. How? What happened was the detective talked to the prosecutor. The prosecutor knew of this psychic, Gina Marks, because of past antics that she had been involved in. And what a lot of times they do is they have lawyers that they like go-to guys that they're used to dealing with. The psychics do. The psychics do. Yeah, they have lawyers that they're used to dealing with whenever they get in trouble. So they call up their lawyer. The lawyer calls up the prosecutor or the detective and says, hey, can't we work this out as a settlement, off-the-table restitution deal, basically, in lieu of an arrest. Mm. So what happens is a lot of times they offer pennies on the dollar. Sometimes they offer the whole amount. In this case, they were offering the whole amount. So they knew you had a strong case. Right, but... What happens when you allow that to occur, it would be like somebody shoplifting hmm. and they shoplift over and over again and then they get caught one out of every 30 times. And when they do get caught, the only thing they say is, oh, I'll tell you what, what if I give you one of the stakes out of the three stakes that I put under my jacket? What if I give one back? How, we call it a day. If they go out and do it again and they just keep doing it and they know the only repercussions is going to be that they have to give back what they stole with no jail time, with no criminal record, they're just going to keep doing it. There's no reason to ever stop if you're a criminal. And what, what about the revenue department? I mean, I presume they don't pay tax, do they? Nobody does anything about it. The average guy who works hard, they'll come and audit him. But yet, these people operate and they just draw up a neon sign and they're operating all over the place with impunity and nobody even touches them. And so what's the reason for that? Well, I had one case where I had an attorney who was ripped off for in excess of $50,000. Again, I mean an attorney. Yeah, it was a relationship issue. And she was a young woman, and she had a relationship issue where her husband was with another woman. We actually got a TV show involved in New, in, uh, New York City. It was a TV show called Crime Watch Daily. And they got involved, and they actually went and 
got the psychic red-handed with an undercover from the TV show and got psychic on the corner and confronted the psychic. And the psychic was like, yeah, you know, he said, don't you feel bad about this? And the psychic was like nodded her head. And she psychic said she was going to pay the victim back and she just needed to go in her apartment. She went back to her apartment and she went in the apartment and she closed the door and never came out. So I called 911 and cops come down in New York City police. Now I used to be a cop. So I hate to disparage the police, but it's just... I can only tell the truth. I mean, I have to tell the facts. The police come down, and I tell them what happened. They look at me. They roll their eyes like, this is just, you know, this is ridiculous. One guy, one cop takes me aside, and he says, you know something? He says, you may call her a victim, but you know what? It's her own fault for going in there and believing in this stuff in the first place. We're not taking a report. And has that been your experience, that the police basically, even though it is illegal, don't take it as seriously as they might? 99.9% of the times when I ask the people that call me, did you go to the police? They say, yeah. And I say, what happened? They laughed at me. They turned their backs on me. They told me it was a civil matter. The number one con that police commit against victims is telling them it's a civil matter. A lazy cop will tell somebody it's a civil matter so they don't have to take a report. Now, sometimes it's laziness, and they know that they should take a report. Other times it's ignorance. They just don't know the law. In New York State, fortune-telling is a crime. It's a B misdemeanor. You're not allowed to say you're a psychic, and you're not allowed to say that you can influence or affect evil spirits or curses or give personal advice. Um, Even in that entertainment context, you're not allowed to? No, you're allowed to do it for entertainment purposes only in conjunction with an exhibition or a show. And but they're everywhere. I mean, you walk through New York and there are those neon signs around. Every three blocks, you know, you'll see a place. It's just they're operating with impunity against the law and the police are refusing to do anything about it. And it galls me, to be honest with you. Why do you think it is? It's because of lack of training, laziness, sometimes even corruption, because there's a lot of money involved. If a psychic scams somebody out of $500,000 and now someone goes into the police department and the detective is in cahoots with the criminal, if the detective tells the victim, hey, you know something, this is a case that's very hard to prove, you know, the DA don't want to do these type of cases, you know, I can see if I can work something out. And then they get back 200000 out of the five hundred. If they can work out a deal where they get call up the lawyer or the, uh, the the psychic and say, hey, listen, I got you a deal where you only have to pay back 100 or 200 There's a, there's a $400,000 profit there. I mean, these numbers you're talking about are dizzying. I mean, it's one thing to say $500, $1,000, even $50,000. $500,000? I have cases that are long-term offenses, $1.9 million in Florida the other day. From one victim? One victim over the course of seven years. A young woman. I need to know how that happened. Uh, it's actually, it's a current case. I just went and testified in a federal grand jury in the Southern District of Florida, so I can't discuss uh-huh. the details of the case. Um, but it happened over a seven-year period, and, uh, you know, the psychic just used careful manage manipulation, caught the victim at a, at a downtime in her life. And but obviously was, that's a wealthy victim. You know, sometimes you have victims that uh, are well, wealthy, but other times you have victims that come into money from inheritance. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times you have victims that uh, have the ability to earn money in various ways. So do people get groomed for that? Do they get selected by the psychic sometimes for that? One of the things that a self-proclaimed psychic will do when they size up a victim 
is they'll do a cold reading and see if they're vulnerable. But two, they'll also size up what are they wearing, what kind of car are they driving. They'll do some research. I need your name. I need your date of birth. They'll do research just like a private investigator would mm. to see what kind of house do they own, what kind of job do they have. Did it look like they have a lot of money? Is, there, you know, is this someone that is uh, going to be a cash cow for me? And now, I guess, with the internet, that's so much easier than it was in the oh. days of a carnival. Oh, it's so easy. I mean, one of the one of the things they do is say, listen, no, if you want to get back together with your uh, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, the first thing we need to do is I need to do deeper research. I need you to, but I need you to write your name down on a piece of paper. And there's a lot of psychological things that are at play. They tell the victim, you can't talk about this work with anybody. If you do the work, we'll fail. Because they know they're dealing with a vulnerable person. This is one of the hallmarks of one of these scams. They know that they've got a person who is grieving the loss of a loved one. And they know that if that person goes and tells someone else, hey, I started seeing a psychic, and she said I needed to give her $5,000 to do some rituals, that then the person who isn't grieving the loss of a loved one, who isn't vulnerable, will say, hey, stop, hold on, what are you doing? Why are you giving this woman money? So in order to prevent that from occurring, the psychic will say, listen, this is between you, me, and God. Anything we do here stays here. The biggest clients I have a subset would be women between the ages of maybe 25 and 35 who want to get married and want to have kids and they're worried about a relationship issue. And the psychic will tell them that unless they solve this problem, this blockage or this negativity that's in their life that's stopping them from having a relationship and getting married. They're going to grow old and be alone and be a cat woman with eight cats in the house. That's what they sell them. That's so interesting because I would have, if I was guessing, I would have thought probably the obvious target would be elderly women, perhaps people that had lost a spouse or something and they're looking for answers. No. And, uh, and was that the case with the doctor that you met in Boca Raton? That's how she'd been she done? She was having marital difficulties. Because she's a doctor. Yeah, I mean, you think right. again, of all she professionals, said me, she said <laughs> with a belief me, in science. She says, Bob, I'm so embarrassed. She goes, I'm a doctor. I went to medical school. I don't know how I could ever fall for this. And I said, it's because you were experiencing marital difficulties. You were all upset about that. You suspended your critical thinking. And this woman is just so good. Like I said, don't blame the victim. Credit the con. You Don't underestimate the powers of persuasion that these psychics that are scammers have over people. The basic scam will happen like this. The victim will go to see the psychic to pay a nominal fee, something under $100. The psychic will say they see that there's a deeper negativity. There's a, there's a root cause of a problem. There's a blockage, negativity. There's a curse. They need to look to see where this is coming from. And then they will say that the person needs to do a ritual. If the woman is, say, 30 years old, they'll say, you need to go get to the bank and get $30,000, $1,000 for each year of your age because this is a, something that's been going on since you were born. The number one story I hear is back when your mother and father were dating, your father was also dating another woman. He was playing the field, and there was another woman that was in love with your father. But he decided to marry your mother instead of that other woman. So that other woman felt scorned, and she put a curse on your mother and your father. And when you were in your mother's womb, that curse passed from your mother to you, and it's always going to be with you, and it's going to go on to your children and your children's children. You're the one that has to stop this curse. Does that In that narrative, does it ever actually reach a climax? I mean, is there a goal where they're like, right, when we've extracted $25,000 out of this person, we'll tell them they're cured? No, it just goes on and on to the point 
where then the psychic just fades, does like a fade, like a relationship that you don't want anymore. Ghost they stop, they, they ghost them. They stop answering the phone. They stop texting them. Or, or one day they just go there and the place is gone and the sign is down and the psychic has disappeared with all their money. So they tell them this story and they say, hey, listen, I'll do a ritual. You need to go and get $30,000. You need to take the $30,000 and put it under your bed in a dark place. Money is the root of all evil. And what we need to do is we need to draw the evil away from you, and the evil will definitely, it'll want to go to the money. So that's what we'll use to draw the evil away from you. But when the evil goes to the money, we need to trap it in something. So you need to go get a carton of eggs, and you need to take one egg. You need to put it under the bed. The egg represents the soul. You put it under the bed on top of the money. Then the psychic will call the victim up and say some prayers with the, the victim before they go to bed. Next thing you notice, oh, we've angered. The evil has gone to the money. You need to bring me the egg. You need to bring me the money right away. <laughs> the person's frantic. They come with this money, the egg, and they'll say, hey, look, you know, give it to me right away. And they, they act like this is a big dramatic thing going on. The lights are turned down. This candle's lit. The room is dark. And they'll say, oh, give me the egg. They'll put the egg inside of a bag on a table, and they'll hit it. And they go, oh, it won't break. It won't break. And they act real dramatic. Like, and you know an egg should break. It should just squat. So then all of a sudden they pull the egg out and they hit it. And it, all of a sudden blood comes out of the egg. It cracks and blood comes out. Or a black snake comes crawling out. What? Well, what they do is they doctor an egg. They put a little rubber snake in there or they put a real snake in there and they put uh, blood, in, like cayenne pepper. They doctor the egg or dye and they put it in an egg. They take the egg that the person brought them and they switch it out. When they pull it out of the bag, they pull out the one that they've already doctored. Mm-hmm. Then they hit it and then they say, oh my God, look, that's what was inside you. That's what manifested itself. There's a curse. That's the curse. So they use a magic trick to prove the existence of the curse to the victim. Once they get the victim believing in that, they're home free. But what they do is they say, you got to get out of here right away. You're in danger. I'm in danger. My children are in danger. I need to take this money because the money has the evil on it. I need to take the money to my church right away. I'll bury the egg and everything, and I'll take the money to my church, and I'll cleanse it of the evil. And then come back tomorrow or the next day and I'll give you the money back. And then invariably the victim comes back. They're like, okay, well, what happened? Oh, it's worse than I thought. I can't, we need to use, we need to do more rituals. We need to put more money into the work. And so they don't give the money back. And herein lies the crime of the grand larceny. What happens is it's not that someone is going to a psychic and saying, give me $30,000 and I'll remove this curse. We're dealing with a criminal element in the American Romani community, okay? And I don't want to disparage an entire community. There's good and bad in all ethnic groups. So I definitely don't want to disparage. I mean, you know, there's there's honest, hardworking people in all ethnic groups. But of the self-proclaimed psychics that I've caused to be arrested, the majority of them came from the criminal element within the American Romani community. I have a lot of confidential informants uh, in the community, in the, within the criminal element. What's uh, in it for them? They give me information because they're looking to knock off the competition sometimes. Other times they actually are good people who just are in the community and don't want to see this going on. And they're willing to give information. 
Other times, they're looking so that if they get in trouble in the future, maybe I would go easier on them because they've given me information, which is not going to happen, but that's the, the thinking. You know, if I become friends with him, maybe I stand a better chance if I ever get caught. So this place is where a British guy was ripped off for 550000 by a woman um, went by the name of Priscilla Kelly Del Moro. And uh, she was... Uh... He had fallen in love with uh, a woman out in Arizona at a rehab. He was going to rehab and he and he fell in love with a woman and she was going through some marital difficulties at the time and she said i can't do this right now i can't be with you and he was really banged up over that so but he took a few months and he got over it but he but he was walking in new york city one day and he went in to see a psychic and the psychic said oh no you shouldn't have given up on that relationship that woman is your soulmate you know you're supposed to be with her and i can help that happen and the psychic uh I believe it was the Lower East Side of Manhattan started getting him to give money for rituals and furtherance of work to get him, reunite him with this woman. And he had been involved in, um, made some money through search engine optimization. He had done that. And he was successful in, in business and, and had acquired a lot of money. And uh, at one point she told him, you need to get a Tiffany's engagement ring, $60,000. And you need to give me that engagement ring. And then, uh, you know, that'll be a symbol of you two getting together and I have to do hocus pocus, you know, work with using the engagement ring. But don't worry, you're going to get it back. What happened is she told him at one point, that psychic told him that he needed to go out to California because he was, he was getting impatient as to why he wasn't with this woman. And she, had, she was in California. So she told him, the psychic told him, go out to California and confront this woman, basically, you know, tell her that you love her and whatnot. And uh, he went out there and the woman was like, whoa, whoa, I told you. And he says, no, but we're twin flames, we're soulmates, we're supposed to be together. So he's thinking the way the psychic has filled his head with you're supposed to be, this is your soulmate. So obviously it came on really heavy to the woman and she was like, whoa, you know, what, what, what are you talking? You're talking crazy. So he got really distraught over that. So he stopped seeing that psychic and he went to another psychic in Midtown. And that psychic told him, oh, the other psychic didn't know. She wasn't good at what she was doing. I can help you. But she was correct. That is your soulmate. That is your twin flame. So with this, he starts seeing the psychic and she tells him that she needs gold to, to work because the story was when he was younger, he had a girlfriend in high school that committed suicide. And he was very distraught over that. That's something that he never got over. And the psychic told him that that woman that, that had committed suicide, that young girl, her spirit had never passed on to the next plane. And she was plaguing him because she didn't want him to ever be in a relationship with any woman other than her. So they needed to get her to the other realm and get her across to the other side into heaven so she tells him she needs to build a gold bridge this mystical gold bridge and he needs to buy gold from a gold dealer and she has him calling some number of some guy that's supposedly selling gold and she arranges she gives him he gives her money seventy thousand dollars to put into buying this bridge that's gonna make the the girl want to go over the spirit go over the bridge and build the bridge to go into the other realm then at one point she tells him oh you know something we have a real problem the bridge was 10 miles too short. We have to scrap the whole thing. Now we got to build an 80-mile bridge. She had him give 80000 for an 80-mile bridge, for gold to build an 80-mile bridge. 
you know, this guy, he was just really, really distraught, and she was able to really take advantage with these crazy stories. And you'll see that in a lot of these cases. They come up with wild stories. Mm. And you say, how could anyone believe this? But you have to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. You're not the one that's girlfriend committed suicide when you were young. You're not the one that has that emotional trauma still with you. And while maybe not everybody, even when vulnerable, would fall for this, the psychic only needs one or two people if they're going to get $500,000. You see these psychic shops in New York City. I estimate, and, and uh, there's been estimates. I mean, the psychic industry is a $2 billion industry, at least. The average shop brings in like $350,000 a year. And that's if they're no good. <laughs> and a lot of times they don't even pay taxes on it. You know, in, in this particular story, you know, this guy... He was really emotionally distraught. She really took advantage of him. And I caused that psychic to be arrested. That second psychic took him for $550,000. Wow. And she, all she got was three years probation. And in that case, the DA, I felt, did a terrible job. The DA, from what I understand, didn't want the case right from the start, I believe. Is some of the attitude towards not prosecuting these people tied in with the American attitude towards freedom of religion, I wonder? Because, you know, this is the country of kind of evangelical phone-ins and Scientology. You know, there are organized religions where people give those religions a lot of money. And you can't prove that the things they're saying are true in those instances either. Well, I won't take a case like that because you can't prove whether heaven exists or whether God exists. That's not the cases that I take. I take the cases where I look at the theft law. And I apply the facts and circumstances, the totality of facts and circumstances, the interaction between the two people, and I find the provable lies. In other words, they go through a person's cash. Once they go through all the cash, they say, I need you to open up credit cards. And they say, I need you to get cards at Bloomingdale's, at Nordstrom's, at Macy's, you know, at high-end shops. They know there's a $5,000 credit limit on those cards as soon as you open them up. So I need you to get gift cards, $5,000 worth of gift cards on that credit card that you just opened up. You need to give me the gift cards so I can buy crystals and candles <laughs> in furtherance of the work to do the rituals. Mm. Now, I trace the gift cards and I find out that the cards were not used to purchase crystals and candles in furtherance of the work. The cards were used for buying high-end women's fashions at a, at a clothing store, for a kid's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. You know, it, the cards were not used for the intended purpose. That's a crime. It's like making a donation to the church to be used for a certain purpose and the pastor's absconding with the money and going on a vacation to the Bahamas with the church money. That's a whole different realm. So you've sometimes sent people undercover into some of these places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of times I send women in because it's just uh, there are more women victims than there are men. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there are men victims too, and I've gone in myself at times. So, you've gone in yourself? Yeah, but I'm getting so well known that it gets a little harder. I kind of have to disguise myself a little bit, you know. And so you're bald. Do you wear a wig? I've worn a wig. Do you? I've worn, you know, different various uh, looks. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times I use the relationship thing and say that, you know, I'm not finding love and, uh, you know, I don't know why. I can't figure out why is it that uh, I can't find somebody, you know. I had a, an elderly man in Idaho. His wife had passed away. Whether you're 17 or you're 70, you know, you still want love. And he wanted a relationship with a woman that he met. And he was worried about how it was going. He met a woman and was worried about how it was going. So he called the psychic up online and he gave her... Uh, like thirty thousand dollars, 
And he called me, and he was very distraught. And he was like, Bob, you know, it's my life savings. I'm an old man. It's my life savings, and I don't know what I'm going to do. What had he been told? He had been told that she could do rituals that would cause him to be with that other woman. And he wanted to be with this woman that he met, and his wife had died, and he was lonely. So she preyed upon that loneliness, and she was able to get him to send her $30,000 because she said she could use that money in furtherance of doing rituals to get him together with her. And it turns out she just, you know, did the fade on him. He never got the money back, okay? And um, in that case, you know, she said, don't worry, I'm only going to hold the money and work with it temporarily to do the work, and then I'm going to send you your money back. And she never sent the money back. He went to the police. They turned their back on him, said, nothing we can do for you. That type of case, I was unable to help him because it needed police involvement in order to subpoena certain information that, was, that I couldn't subpoena. So I, I felt really bad for him. And the devastating effect that this has on people, the emotional abuse and the financial decimation that the victims often suffer, is it's immeasurable. Uh, he called me one day, and he was at Walmart. He had gone back to work, and he said to me, Bob, he called, he was crying, and he was lying on the floor in the bathroom. And he said, Bob, I had to go back to work, and I was standing, he said, uh, all day, and I couldn't stand any longer. And I went into the bathroom, and I fell on the floor, and now I can't get up. My legs gave out. He goes, and I'm so embarrassed. I don't know what to do. I mean, this is the kind of thing that a psychic can cause, you know, to happen in a person's life. You're on a mission, really, aren't you? I am on a mission. I'm absolutely on a mission. I'm on a mission to help vulnerable people who get emotionally abused and financially decimated by heartless con artists who just look to prey on somebody when they're down. I don't hate the criminal. It's not like I have a personal grudge against the criminal. I hate what they do. But you must sometimes have a bit of a sneaky admiration for what they do. You, you were talking about, you know, value the con, realize well, the skill no, that they I, put in. Yeah, I shouldn't say credit the con. When I, say, when I say don't blame the victim, credit the con, I don't mean credit the con in a good way. Sure. I just mean credit the con at how adept they are at being able to scam people. Is one man enough, though, to combat this huge industry that you describe? I mean, I know you've got the Bunko yeah. organization, but, you know, it's institutionalized. It's a huge burden. <laughs> I have to say, it's, an, it's a huge burden. But the thing is, is that I'm in a unique position, given the fact that I was a police officer. And so when people come to me and call me and say, hey, you know, I went to the police and they turned me away. I have the unique ability, having been a police officer, to take that same person and go back with them to the police department and say, remember this person? Remember when you turned them away? Well, guess what? I'm here now and you're going to do this case. And the reason you're going to do it is because I used to do your job and I know what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And I know the law because I did this at one time. So you might be able to con the victim. It's what I call the con that comes after the con. But then I can walk in and say, listen, detective, you're not going to get away with this. That's my strength. And therefore, I'm not only fighting the criminals, but a lot of times I'm fighting police and prosecutors because they're looking to stick it to me because they don't like the fact that I'm making them have to do their job. Bob Nygaard. My thanks to him and to the Citizen M Hotel in Bowery, who provided a recording venue for us. Uh, if you're heading to NYC on business anytime soon, it's a very stylish, great value place 
to stay. And remember, if you have a story for the show, or if you've just heard about someone you'd like to hear me interview, send us an email via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. We don't have time to reply to everybody, but we do read them all. Uh, Next up, Alex Fox talking baby making after this. It's time for the Foxhole. Let's talk sex with Alex Fox. How are you? I have been working on a Netflix show called Sex Education. Yes, I knew that because you've been tweeting about it. You're very excited. I am hugely excited. If I was working on a Netflix show. So, this is the one with Gillian Anderson, isn't it, where she plays a therapist who then sort of offers sex advice inadvertently to her son who's listening in. Pretty much. They got me in a room with the writers and the original inventor of the script to talk for about four or five hours about my experience uh, to give them some inspiration for plot lines, but also to check whether the things they were planning on including uh, were actually likely to happen in real life. So, so it would resonate with predominantly young audience who it's intended for. But now the show's a hit. The and season two's being mass- made. Yeah. Presumably you've added an extra zero. Well, I've added an extra line to my CV. They've now brought me on as an official script consultant. Oh, exciting. So for season two, the scripts get sent to me. Well, and have you I've, got the scripts for season two now? Yeah, yeah, they send them to me in blocks. So I get to see bits of them before they're filmed by the cast. Uh, and they're asking me not only this time to, um, to comment on how realistic the script is or whether the language is accurate, whether it's the kind of thing a young person would say or conversely that an expert would say is the terminology right but they're actually asking me about ideas for the jokes and the plot lines now oh, no. um, it's going to be shaken s- vac jokes <laughs> in sex education <laughs> well I've signed a non-disclosure agreement Ollie so I can't tell you too much but I can give you a, fr- a few mini clues mm. I think it's going to be a very fruity series what was that film recently where someone fucked a peach Call me by your name. Well, actually, there's a line about fucking a watermelon in season one that directly comes from my experiences with young people. My experiences talking to young people, I should say. (laughs) I have not fucked a watermelon in public or indeed in private. And on with your questions of sex. This one comes from an anonymous lady who says... My husband and I are trying for a baby. We've been sexually active for about 10 years and all our experience thus far has been in how not to get pregnant. (laughs) So I have a few questions about this. Uh, One, Alex, do you have any ideas on how to actually aim for procreative sex? Putting the penis inside the vagina is a good start. Yes, uh, often not your advice, in fact, isn't it? (laughs) It's more to the the sexual world than PNV. For once, penetration is the name of the game (laughs) here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She says, thinking about babies doesn't really get us in the mood, thankfully, Uh, but it seems weird to have wild, kinky sex when your aim is making life. It's such a serious life choice combined with something that's usually very much an escape from serious thoughts. Uh, Two... I usually jump straight off to run to the loo to avoid cystitis nightmares, she says. But I'm guessing this isn't the best idea in this scenario, as when I'm running to the loo, there's usually a delightful stream of cum running down my legs. Uh, What a visual. (laughs) And, well, then her third question, I, I guess, ties in with that. She says, Alex, is the whole lying with your legs in the air thing an old wives' tale? So, first of all, do you need to lay with your legs in the air after you've had sex in order to maximise your chances of conceiving a baby? 
I can see why that has logic in people's heads. There is no real medical evidence, though, to show that uh, moving around or standing up after sex actually minimises or or reduces your chances of, of falling pregnant. Once deposited in the vagina, sperm are pretty damn good at trying to get to their ultimate destination. Um, They can usually reach the cervix anywhere within uh, about 15 minutes, although other studies show that some of them take up to 12 hours. You're certainly not going to lay on your back for half a day (laughs) waiting for that all to happen. And also they can actually live in the body for up to seven days after they've been popped there. And again, laying down for a week is probably not going to slot into most people's lives very conveniently. Having said that, there has been a piece of research that's actually been looked into by the NHS. It looked at 391 couples who were having assistance to conceive um, via intrauterine insemination. So this wasn't a standard procedure of um, just having intercourse. Um, And it did actually find that 27% of women who laid down for a period of time went on to have a baby compared with only 17% of women who conceived when they got up and moved around. And what about this issue then of going to the bathroom straight after sex? What would you advise her on that? I spoke to Melissa Kramer from Live UTI Free, which is an absolutely brilliant website, particularly for people who are getting persistent, really troublesome UTIs over and over again. But I asked her about this and she says there's lots of other things that you can do to uh, reduce your chances of getting cystitis that don't involve running to the toilet straight after sex. For starters, there's a theory that sex causes UTIs in some people because bacteria from the hands, the mouth and the surrounding skin around the genitals gets pushed into the urethra, the pee pipe, where it causes problems. And so just washing your hands thoroughly before sex and maybe you and your partner having a shower uh, can contribute towards uh, minimising that uh, the the chance of, of contracting a UTI after after intercourse. Um, We also know that the microbes living in the vagina are intricately connected to those living in the urinary system. Uh, There's lots of people out there who are taking oral probiotics in order to try and support that healthy situation. So if you can uh, make sure that your body is in as good nick in terms of um, microbes, then if you don't want to run to the loo straight after a sex sesh, you should still be A-OK. And then that leads us on to her first question, because, you know, this idea of kind of preparing yourself for sex might seem unromantic and certainly unkinky going to wash your hands first. But when it comes to baby making, there's a lot of diarising, isn't there? If you are trying to conceive at the optimum time, there's a lot of discussion beforehand. How does that marry up with, I want to have a kinky sex life? There's a real dichotomy or a dichotomy, if you will, um, at stake when you're trying to conceive a baby through intercourse. On one hand, one thoroughly cleaned, fresh hand, there's the problem of keeping things exciting in the face of having to know when you're ovulating, uh, planning your, uh, your sex sessions around that very particular time versus this idea that if the sex is too kinky or too wild, on the other hand, then to many people that seems um, an inappropriate way to create a life. But I mean, you don't want, as a child, you don't ever want to be told how you were conceived. 
So it doesn't. It's not like you're ever going to say, "Oh yeah, you know, Mummy was strung up from the ceiling when it happened." It doesn't matter, does it? Well, maybe if Mummy was strung up from the ceiling, then at least you're upside down then, <laughs> and the, the sperm is uh, heading in the right direction. No, but I, I do think still a lot of parents to be do imagine that the situation should be very reverent because they're doing this serious thing of creating a family. Mm. In fact. There is so much evidence, both scientific and anecdotal, that shows that the more relaxed and happy and joyous and uh, chilled out people can be about the lovemaking situation, whether it's wild or whether it's mild, Mm. that is more likely to result in a pregnancy because overthinking, unfortunately can often hinder uh, the natural processes of the body. Any kind of stress can get in the way of the baby making. Yeah, as if you remember when I went to interview that sperm donor in Scotland, it's our episode, The Inseminator, he was talking to me about how when he is assisting gay women to conceive, in his view, even though essentially it's you know a turkey baster and you can do it in a completely biological way, the ones that reach conception much more effectively are the ones where they essentially have a romantic evening around it. It is sort of proper making love, in his view, rather than just the administration of some semen. Do you think there is something in that? If that's what helps you relax and feel um, less anxious about the process, then sure. But also, if you're finding that sex is becoming mundane and samey or something that you're worried about because you're so obsessed with the timing, perhaps necessarily so, then switching it up and just having some wild sex, being kinky, being fetishistic, that is also fine so long as you're getting the sperm where it needs to be. And to that end, I spoke to a number of people in my my little black contacts book about how they conceive their children. And trust me, there are some full-on stories out there. One guy actually told me that his son was conceived while him and his partner were on holiday in India in the middle of a religious festival season. Uh, there was a fire ritual, naked drum parades, elephant races, nosebleeds and madness. Uh, another... I mean, that's <laughs> unusual, to be fair. That's someone who's responded to your tweet or whatever it was with thinking, ah, I have a conception story. True, but I do think a lot of people, particularly if they've taken their eye off the ball or the balls, if you will, and they're yeah. just enjoying sex in that moment, the reason that they have conceived under these crazy circumstances is because they weren't overthinking the process. Yes. Um, another contact of mine, she said um, that her and her husband actually managed to make a kink out of the conception efforts. They said they really desperately knew that they wanted uh, some children. They'd had four miscarriages tragically over the space of five years. They were really trying desperately. They were monitoring their cycles. They're going through all those processes. There were hospital appointments, ovulation strips, temperature checking, and everything had gotten to the point with them where it was rather steeped in grief and worry. So in order to try and break that cycle, they decided to fetishise that baby-making process in order to make it exciting again. What does that mean? The husband would say things like, oh, I'm going to put a baby inside you, or these tits are so ready. And they did decide to do the lying down with the legs in the air thing afterwards, for whatever it's worth. And they made that part of their saucy routine too, uh, by having the husband stroke her stomach and, in their own words, finger the surplus come in a bit whilst bringing her a cup of tea. Framing a sexual experience that way is obviously not going to work for everybody But my point is that whatever works for you is most likely to work. Are there any positions that are recommended for baby making? 
Again, the evidence is scant.、Um, there are theories that ones that deliver the semen. As close to the cervix as possible, so missionary position with the man on top will potentially make things easier. And ones in which gravity is against you, so woman on top, cowboy position,、uh, might be less helpful. But ultimately, as I said earlier, sperm's really good at trying to do the very job that it was created for. I'm going to share this story from one of my contacts, who I'm going to anonymise, but she says. Our daughter was conceived during an episode we have christened Pissmus.、Uh, we're quite experimental in bed, and during one session where I dressed up as Mike Tyson and then pegged my partner,、uh, we were trying to come up with something even more bonkers, creative, and weird to do around Christmas time. I decided that I'd really like him to wee in my bumhole, and thus our forthcoming celebrations became known as Pissmus. Goodness! The big day arrived, and we excitedly don't remember、cooked. this happening in a Christmas Carol. <laughs> I don't want to know how they stuffed the turkey. But anyway, the big day arrived, and we excitedly cooked a Christmas dinner whilst trying to figure out how we were physically going to get him to wee in my bumhole. In the end, I got the biggest dildo I could find and sat with it in my butt whilst eating. Said roast pork,、uh, and then after we cleared the, cleared the plates away, we retired to the bathroom, and he did we in my bumhole. The sensation was quite strange, and I couldn't really work out whether it was working. I ended up freaking out a little bit, and then laughed at how silly it all was,、uh, causing piss and tiny bits of shit to explode all over his、Jesus、belly Christ, and leave a little Mister Hanky by his foot. <laughs> anyway. A couple of weeks after that, I found out that I was pregnant, <laughs> and we still think this is funny to this day. I'm presuming that Merry some... Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm presuming that something in addition to the wing in the bumhole happened.、Yes. Um, but my point here. No, you've made your point. It, yeah, I was going to say illustrated in technicolor、yes. is that、right. if you think you're kinky, someone else will have made a baby in a much more extreme manner、yeah. than you can even imagine. I hope that answers your question, anonymous lady. And if you have a question of sex for the next episode of the Foxhole, what do you have to do with it? Load that question into your bumhole via whatever were, means possible. <laughs> and then shoot it out towards modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback. It really is a piece of piss. <laughs> and if you want to follow Alex on Twitter and Instagram, how do you spell your name? Please don't do a pun about pissing. Just spell it. A L I X F O X. Great. Can you hear how much I'm holding back here? And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of another month's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador.、Uh, following this missive from Ethan, who says, "I was first introduced to the podcast a year and a half ago by my boyfriend David, and ever since I've been in the full throes of obsession. Never would I have thought I could find a podcast that makes me go into hysterics and full-on cry in the space of an hour. Please accept my money for two beers, one pint for you." And two halves for Ollie and Alex. I'd love it if you could make my amazing boyfriend David the ambassador for his hometown of Queensferry, Edinburgh.、Uh, I certainly can. David, you are now on the map. Congratulations!、Uh, if you would like to become a ambassador, just buy us a beer or write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and then tell us about it using the feedback form on our website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you next month.
next time on The Modern Man. I would say France is maybe 10 years behind the UK in, in terms of craft beer. They're particularly proud of their own traditions, so I think it will be hard to win people over, but I'm certain it will happen. And the beer's good, so, you know, why not? What's the one thing people living in Loire Valley don't really want? Meet the man who bravely brought British beer to wine country. Tommy Barnes, next time on The Modern Man. Download it August the 1st, wherever you get your podcasts. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.